You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. German invasion of England took place in July 1940 after the British retreat from Dunkirk. I can't stand on the sidelines any longer. We don't accept your decisions. You accept ours. I'm not going to become involved in any political organization. I'm sorry. I don't want to join any organization. Look, this isn't 1937. Things have changed. It happened. It's a fact. Your country is defeated and overrun. But can you accept it? Can you collaborate? Is this what you had in mind when you decided to be a nurse? If it happened here, if it happened to you, what would you do? Could you stand the looks, the stares? Who are your friends? Trust them. Can they trust you? Look, I don't give a damn what you say about the fascists, but don't try and whitewash those partisans. They killed six of my closest friends and they very nearly killed me in a few seconds. Yes, I do call them murderers, and I ought to know. The appalling thing about fascism is that you've got to use fascist methods to get rid of it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Winter Tyson. You don't accept us, we accept you. Also with us is Mr. Calum Vattenstahl. Hello there, Mike, and hi, Winter. Hi, Calum. This week we're looking at Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Molo's It Happened Here. The film played festivals in 1964 and was released theatrically in 1966. It tells the story of Pauline, a nurse who lives in a world where the Nazis took over the UK during World War II. At first she goes along with the rule of the Reich until she witnesses and unwittingly participates in their cruelty, prompting her to join the British resistance. I would warn you about spoilers, but I pretty much ruined the whole thing for you right there. So, Winter, when was the first time you saw It Happened Here, and what did you think? 
Okay, so the first time I saw it must have been about two years ago now, but it was a film that had been on my radar for quite some time because it's one of those books that, you know, as a someone who used to read a lot of science fiction encyclopedias, you'd see photos of the Nazis marching past Big Ben in those books and you kind of think, oh, wow, what's that? That's interesting. And you'd occasionally look it up and it was never available. Uh, but then I finally remembered it because of a, a passing comment about it in a BFI publication a couple of years ago and I thought, oh, I'll have a look, and lo and behold, it was there. And then lo and behold, six months after I finally got it, the BFI brought out their sort of all singing, all dancing uh, edition of it, etc. I really like the film. There is a, a sort of a local connection for me living in Guernsey, which was uh, occupied by the Nazis in the Second World War. And it's got interesting, odd little bits. Like There's a copy of our local paper from when we got liberated in there as well. But I think it's a really interesting film because I like the mechanics of sort of amateur filmmaking. So it's nice to watch a film that's as much a tale about the making of itself as it is about the narrative that's actually taking place. But I also quite enjoyed the frankness of the film in some respects. And, you know, I've got to admit, I, I quite enjoyed some of its sloppiness as well. But it's one of those movies where it does take you a bit of time to get into, I think, because technically there are issues within the first portion of the film uh, that kind of don't quite let you get in there but it's also just an odd and interesting film because it's not the heroic resistance tale we used to seeing a lot of especially from you know kind of uh, european uh, resistance cinema as it were how about you calum well i hadn't seen it until recently to tell you the truth but it was something i was aware of because i was um you know one of those people who was following Kevin Brownlow's restoration of, of Napoleon and other things and, you know, knew him to be an interesting figure on the, uh, in the old movie world. Uh, this is back when I was a, a teenager and stuff when this was happening. I, I was aware that he'd made some films and I, like Winter, I'm kind of a, you know, a, an aficionado of books like, you know, The Man in the High Castle, stuff like that. And alternate histories and things interest me. There's a local connection for me, too, although the Nazis didn't actually take over Winnipeg. We did conduct something called If Day, in which um, they made it as if that had happened. They brought soldiers dressed in Andrew Mollo-level quality uh, German uniforms onto the streets, and they marched. And this was all covered in Guy Madden's film, My Winnipeg, which people, I think they assume that's one of the made-up things, but it actually did happen. So, uh, yeah, it happened here. I, too, really appreciate strangely the sloppiness of it it's it's one of those movies whose flaws make it better not necessarily more realistic although they do that it's just something about you know the illusions uh that are that are required by the by the budget they really hook into me anyway as i watch it and of course yes there are issues with the uh the sound especially in the first quarter of the film or so i couldn't make out what many people were saying and and the uh, the Leeds combination uh, Irish Welsh English accent didn't help, but it was uh, it's a it's an amazing film, really, especially considering how old Brownlow and Molo were when they made it. Yeah, we should probably say that they started making this film when one was eighteen, the other was sixteen, and when they finished, one was twenty four and the other was twenty two. So this is amazing that we have a feature length film that has all of these 
historical reenactment parts to it. it has Nazis marching through the streets of London in Trafalgar Square, has all of these different bits to it, and you think, my God, these kids were so young making this, and they managed to pull this thing off. So even if it's not maybe 100% successful all the way around, it is really just amazing to look at that and keep that in the back of your head the entire time. I, I hate them because I was making films at that age, too, and they're not nearly as good. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely very jealous of these guys. I had heard of this film a long time ago. I've been a big Peter Watkins fan for a lot of years, and this movie would get brought up in connection with Peter Watkins, but I never really knew what his connection was to it. He worked a little bit on it, was a contemporary of the director's, worked at the same place where Kevin Brownlow worked at. So there is a definite connection there. And then also this whole idea of an alternate history and using documentary form to tell this story, I think, is a really smart way to do it. I mean, they, they use documentary insofar as there's a newsreel section. So it's shot very much like a, a newsreel and has a contemporary newsreel voiceover artist working on this. And then the rest of it is shot more like a kind of a docudrama or a straight up drama. And yeah, we do have this one central character that we follow throughout most of the movie, which is really smart. The way that they present the story, the way that they roll it out, I think is a very intelligent way of doing it. Yeah. And with regards to sort of the mixture of the sort of more traditional drama elements and the documentary elements, one of the things I like about it is you do get the sense that perhaps better filmmakers wouldn't have stumbled into that style as much as Brownlow and Molo do, um, because they're obviously operating very much on sort of a needs-must basis with regards to how they get their footage and you know how they uh, represent people on screen and, and actions and so on and so forth. And I, I kind of think a lot of its charm is very, very much bound up in why did you shoot it this way? Because that's how we could afford to shoot it and a nice way to, to disguise how you can afford to shoot something is to make it seem more like a intelligently thought out choice rather than just, well, we're just straight up going to interview these guys. Yeah, and it's, it's a strange combination of that, um, you know, the, the obvious privation of the circumstances and you know, obsessive need to get it right, especially, in, uh, you know, in terms of the costumes and things like the buses and, and just securing the, the streets and the locations that they needed. They, they were driven to uh, get these things right. At the same time, they were letting other things kind of fly because they just, there, there was nothing much they could do. They had, what was it? 20,000 pounds, something like that. And they did what they could. And it, it, it all comes together in this in this incredible porridge of cinema. And looking at it through 2019 eyes, it's like, okay, I wouldn't necessarily know if these uniforms are 100% correct, if the insignias and all of these kind of things are right on the money. But shooting it in 1958 and 1964, they were very conscious of how things were supposed to look. They were just such a short while away from the end of World War II that they really, it, Andrew Molo was a nut about historical accuracy and really went out of his way and their way to secure the right uniforms, have the right look, have the right patches, have all of these things. When they have shots of crowds, they're looking at when they, they 
quote unquote cast these crowds, they would look for the right people with the right faces, the right kind of mustaches. Uh, they had women dig out their 1940s hats in order to wear those because fashions had already changed from 46 to 58 when they started shooting this. So that historical accuracy, I'm sure in 64 meant a lot more when people were looking at it, but I think it still adds to a real sense of verisimilitude in 2019 that even if we're not very conscious of it, we're still probably picking this up. Part of the thing is, I mean, you're seeing obviously uh, essentially a, a, you know, a student, what would be a student film in sort of in many people's uh, regards, but those are, those are actual kind of military vehicles rolling around in the background. We're not, obviously we're miles away from sort of special effects and, and they're not, you know, they're not um, engaging in uh, map painting, et cetera, et cetera. But the sheer amount of because it's not just one or two german officers wandering past the screen it's the sheer amount of people and uniforms and equipment and vehicles that they've got rolling through that is absolutely insanely impressive and not only that i was going to bring up the um, world war one newsreel that they make so they not only needed the world war ii era costumes they needed the world war one I, w- I was astonished to find out that wasn't newsreel footage that they had shot that yeah, because that seems to be the way that you would do it now would be to find existing footage and integrate that in and maybe try to match the green of the film and do all those kind of things. But yeah, this is 100% them. I thought for sure looking at parts of this, I was like, oh yeah, they just picked up that footage someplace or that's, you know, a war film that was being shot. That's a newsreel. But no, they went out of their way to make this all of their own. Mm-hmm. Well, the event the event that it's depicting did really happen, and I believe was filmed, unless I'm imagining that. So I I just made the assumption that they had found the film somewhere, being you know archivists that they that they were, and uh, I was wrong. Yeah, very impressive. And I think as well, I mean, coming back to kind of the connection to Peter Watkins is both, you know, Brownlow and Molo and Watkins would have all been immersed in kind of I think the tail end of that whole Pathé newsreel type stuff that was that was banging around. And, of course, in the UK as well, there was a whole sort of new documentary movement with people like um, Humphrey Jennings uh, creating a lot of government-issued uh, documentary filmmaking. And there were all sorts of filmmakers were involved with that, like Calvacanti. And these were filmmakers who took all of those documentary skills, making, you know, a 10-minute film on the post office rolling out telephones to somewhere. And they took it into their, into their films, which would have been around in, in the 50s. And these are films like Dead of Night and Went in a Day Well that were, you know, wide-reaching films and all those influences. You, you can really tell these guys have sort of stewed in, in their immediate influence, I think. Yeah, and the same thing was happening in Canada too, because we had the National Film Board, and we had a whole generation of filmmakers who were who were minted there and uh, went on to to bring those those skills to bear a little later than than in Britain. But uh, that's the same dynamic anyway. Yeah, to realize that Brownlow was born in '38 and Molo in '40, and that these guys grew up as the war is going. I mean, especially Brownlow. I mean, he's uh, what would that be? Eight years old when the war is ending. I mean, that's a really influential thing, and I'm sure that that must have you know, and especially to look around London and and other parts of England and just see the destruction and that it's there for so long. I mean, some of those streets with the rubble that is there. I mean, that's the real deal. That's how London was. Still Still looking. I recently was at a film festival and saw a newsreel, and I'm trying to remember what year it was, but they were showing parts of London that were still so damaged by the Blitz, and it was 
at least a decade after. And it's just amazing to think that that was still the state of London at that time. Yeah, and they'd have both definitely grown up with rationing, which went on sort of well into the 50s as well. You said that uh, there were parts of England that actually fell to the Nazis. Is that right? Yeah. So, well, well saying England will enrage uh, my fellow islanders over here, but uh, parts of Britain, yeah, I live in the um, – so I live in the Channel Islands, and I live on Guernsey, and we were occupied from uh, 1940 till 1945, as well as uh, sort of the other islands, Jersey. And uh, there's an island called Alderney, which was a, a labor camp, and, you know, there is still – horrific news coming out of that part of the Channel Islands. Uh, but yeah, we were we were occupied and, you know, there are photos of essentially British bobbies pointing German soldiers in the right direction for uh, for bits and pieces. And uh, as I said earlier, like the newspaper uh, that's seen on the breakfast table right at the end of the film is the newspaper that was published sort of on our Liberation Day. And we still, you know, we still celebrate Liberation Day 9th of May every year as well. Um, and it's still a very spicy topic of conversation over here it's still you know the wounds still still run run deep and are very immediate so if i where i'm sat now in my kitchen if i walk around the corner there's a a victory v painted on one of the walls that was painted uh, as the island was liberated and some of the walls along there have kind of machine gun embrasures still in them it's a big part of our island story which is one of the very puzzling things about this particular film it's just not it's not known over here at all when you'd think it would be, you know, I mean, there's been television series and obviously last year there was the potato peel pie film as well came out. It's quite a major release, uh, which was based over here during the war. I find it weird that this film has no traction over here, but I think part of that is probably due to it not being massively available. I mean, I certainly don't remember ever seeing it l- even listed on television. And when I was, you know, from about the age of 12, I was an avid videoer of everything and anything that was put out on you know on tv film wise i don't remember seeing it screened anywhere or it was screened in our sister island jersey in the 90s but apart from that it, it, it there is no sort of visible local impact i would guess that it's a fairly touchy subject i mean are there known were there known collaborators in guernsey and 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 subsequently of course you know uh relatives of these collaborators who might really not want to have it have it around yeah of course i mean to be honest um according to i mean in brownlow's book about the making of it he does mention going to jersey and uh, with the film and it didn't play well uh as it were i mean i screened it myself a few weeks ago over here and we had a a sort of a modest audience Uh, it turned out we were on the same night as a charity premiere of rocket man um so (laughs) we kind of lost out a bit on that on the feel-good factor i'm afraid but um you know, people were very interested in the film. They thought it was very interesting uh, because it, it's a very sep. I mean, it's a very separate story to our island story. But you know, they've certainly made. Um, there was a Islands at War series. There's a series called Enemy at the Door. Um, the, there's been countless kind of documentaries made about the past, and there are still divisions. There are there is still animosity in the islands between islanders about uh, things that happened. Um, Etc. But people are even since the nineties, which you know, I, I was a teenager during the nineties, and even since then, there's a big difference in the way people view and talk about the occupation. People are much more open and much more kind of interested uh, in it. We've got a, a local group called 
Festung who are renovating kind of all the all the local, all the bunkers and fortifications because it's now seen as a you know something we could get tourists over here for etc. But even with that, I'm I'm kind of surprised that there's not more knowledge about this particular one given the very specific imagery that every islander is very aware of kind of the photos like i say of the bobbies directing the soldiers or opening doors for german commanders etc there's some very direct parallels there it's a kind of a a missing film uh but in a way of course it's about a it happened here is uh it is very much about a conquered england whereas ours ours is i mean the germans refer to it as kind of what they hoped would be the model occupation because it was quite there was no military were there was no sort of military presence over here before uh before the occupation as such or, or very very little and so it wasn't a you know the island was you know bombed very briefly but it wasn't a contested and fought for occupation it was essentially troops moved out you know um basically anything military was taken away and the germans essentially turned up one day it's a very different story which i which is inter- interesting for myself being an islander and so versed in kind of stories of the occupation here. Um, cause of course this film's about the aftermath of an occupation. It's, 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 it's kind of post, it's almost supposed to be post war, isn't it? And I mean, there's still partisans, uh, and resistance fighting, but it, it feels very much more a film about people just trying to, it's that odd British thing of let's try and get back to normal, shall we? And there's a lot of that undercurrent in the film. And I think a lot of that, undercurrent is what you know what opens the door to fascism within brownlow's view uh, molo's view here is that kind of can we just have something to get us back to a steady tiller chaps that kind of odd british sentiment yeah that very much felt like the whole idea of oh oh well the fascists we're doing this for you and we're doing that for you and we're trying to basically make things normal there's a very pointed speech at one point in the film where there's a fascist up on stage and saying all of these things and it's just basically like everything's fine now nothing to worry about don't pay attention to the resistance don't pay attention to this other stuff everything's great chicken in every pot kind of a thing the National Socialist Creed may seem startling, even abhorrent. But when you meet such apathy, what I want you to show these people is that National Socialism offers them a new philosophy, a new way of life. Now, is that all clear? Further points? Marie? Those without potential are of no use to the state. Yes, this is certainly true. We can have no passengers in our state. The true citizen of our state has certain rights, but also corresponding duties. The rights include educational benefits, cultural benefits, protection, and a standard of living worthy of our people. Yet, if there are people who fail the state, they will have to be removed with other criminal antisocial elements. It cannot be expected that a fair nation should support such human dross. They are useless eaters. To deny this is illogical. Keep calm and carry on. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, because keep calm and carry on is, a, again sort of spinning back around to earlier is that's, a, that's from humphrey jennings's 
unit uh, at the government office where they were producing all of these documentaries that these guys would have been fed. So you can see that message very much drummed into how these guys have pictured this world, I think. I think it's very smart that we have Pauline as our protagonist in here, that we don't go the military route. I know originally, like, there's some footage on the, that DVD that the BFI released a few years ago, and it was early test footage that Brownlow was shooting, and basically he's on the, doing a VO and saying, like, yeah, this was all garbage. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> and you can even tell, like, when, uh, he's even pointing out, like, oh, look at this guy's got a hole in his hat, and that would be unacceptable. Oh, you can tell that after this point, I met Andrew Molo, so the, uniforms are much better but he originally was shooting stuff with a male protagonist and then couldn't really figure out how that was going to work and then they eventually lucked upon the idea of a female protagonist which i think is very smart so that we stay a little bit away from the military angle and have a more humanistic story and having her be a nurse and a caregiver really makes her such a a sympathetic character and that she's not a hero that she kind of lucks into these or unlucks into these situations. Just it's all happenstance as far as where she goes and how the world pushes her. And eventually it kind of pushes her in the right direction. She's a decent person, but the, the film goes a long way explaining how a decent person could fall in with, you know, not, not whole, but fall in nevertheless with, uh, with, with this fascistic uh, organization. I did read that uh, Brownlow's original conception was almost a, a like a hammer horror version of this story, which I have to admit I'd really like to see. But you're right. I, ultimately, the the picking the protagonist they did was uh, as wise a decision as they could possibly have made. And and just in you know in addressing the concerns they wanted to address, which were number one, anyone can become a, a cog in this kind of in this horrible machine, and then the second point they clearly wanted to make was um, one of the one of Sebastian Shaw's lines the doctor the appalling thing about fascism is that you've got to use fascist methods to get rid of it we've all got a bit of it in us it doesn't take very much to bring it to the surface and of course we see that by the end of the film uh, happening yeah which is that whole is it right to punch a Nazi kind of a thing or throw a milkshake if you're in the UK I think I think another thing that the film does quite well, and it and it's because of the you know we're following uh, a female protagonist, is that it speaks quite intelligently about the boredom of occupation as well. Because once you're occupied and there's curfews and there's rules and you've got to start reapplying for stuff, and it's something not often touched on, but just the bureaucracy of having to kind of go through life and then this whole thing of rejoining, you know, to become a nurse, you then have to be re-registered and you have to register with the party, of course, to do the, to do the nursing in this case. But this whole kind of, there's a lot of waiting around in rooms and filling out forms, which again, very, it seems very British to me. Um, but just that kind of, just how boring occupation can be if you're not, uh, you're not an active resistance person. You're not one of the, persecuted people the overtly persecuted people um but you are just trying to work your way through almost kind of this slightly kafkaesque world in which okay right i've just got to get used to applying rules and just how that changes the way you live and the way you live your life and it's i think it speaks quite interestingly about the non-avert changes that occupation make to a person 
Yeah, and that we experience so many of these things through her, that when she goes to the show, that's where she sees this newsreel about the rally at Trafalgar Square, that it's her speaking to these uh, real-life fascists that they brought into uh, the film, uh, which was fascinating that this is you know post-war England, and we have these guys who are 100% Nazis, just fine with being Nazis and spouting just absolute garbage. And they seem to have no problems with it whatsoever. I mean, it's really chilling. And that became what ended up being the most controversial part of this whole film was this six-minute scene where it's basically Pauline interviewing these fascists and them just saying their craziness. It's the creepiest part of the movie, and uh, that's saying a lot, knowing that these guys were genuine. But but British fascism had been around for some time. Of course, Oswald Mosley and his party had uh, been well established. So these guys, but the funny thing is, you know, you hear them talk and it's still the same bullshit. Um, invented. <laughs> like they, they have to invent their, you know, they have to invent and make up history, much like other politicians who are familiar with, in order to justify their beliefs. And, uh, and, and, it, and it's just so on the face of it. They've had 20, 30 years to make their stories better and they haven't been able to because, of course, their stories are garbage. But uh, you know, I, I'm firmly on the side of uh, the, the footage improves the film's philosophy or makes it clearer. But it is also I can totally understand the other side, too. You know, if if I was Jewish, particularly in 1965 or six, when this came out and I saw that, I would just I would be creeped to my very soul and, and not want to see it, not want to have it around. Yeah, I think the whole scene really skirts a very fine line between giving people kind of enough rope to hang themselves but uh, and giving them a soapbox almost and there's a very odd uh, well, was a thing that struck me during that film uh, that particular scene was when um one of the uh, one of the characters talking to the fascists concedes the point about culture it's a really weird moment she says yes granted i i concede you the cultural point and you kind of think it it and it's in, an interesting snapshot of ignorance and bigotries of the time as well i think because it's not just saying here look here are the fascists it's saying hang on a minute everyone's kind of got you know these people the people speaking to them have kind of got these are the roots of the some of these ideas in the head but it's a very odd moment when she concedes the point and but those guys my word they are just I mean, we've just had um, some election, European elections over here, and there are people who are, you know, Sargon of Akkad ugh, uh, stood for one of the parties. He's a, a YouTuber who's just vile, and it, I, it's the same stuff. And it's so depressing when you watch it. Winter, you mentioned Brownlow's book earlier, uh, which is uh, How It Happened Here, which was the book about the making of the film. And he just casually throws out a name. He's like, oh, yeah, this to have somebody like Colin Jordan running around. And I was just like, okay, now I have to look up this person because I don't know who Colin Jordan is. And then to see, oh yeah, he was this proponent of Nazism who lived in England and was around until 2009. And it's just like, wow, that's amazing to know that there were people running around doing this. And no wonder, you know, you guys are in the state you're in, we're in the state we're in. It's just that this kind of evil and hatred never dies. It feels like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, one of the interesting things in the film is they do flash up uh, some sort of stuff from the time. And there, there is a newspaper article, uh, Viscount Rothmere saying, uh, praising Hitler, which is a real, 
um, newspaper article. And, and if you don't know Viscount Rothmere, uh, that is the family that still owns the Daily Mail. Oh, wow. I, I would suggest not doing too much dissimilar work at the moment in, in, in some respects. But it is just a, it, it's a real gut punch. But the, the weirdness of, because the thing is with, Jord, with Jordan is that there's no getting away from the truth of what Nazism is. After the end of all, though, I, I suppose you know there there are so there are debates about during the war who knew what about what was actually going on and to what extent uh, with regards to the Holocaust and such and and in the pub you know in in the general public I know um, there are people who lived over here who had no i no idea uh, partly because we obviously had limited newspapers um, but you know after the war when everybody knows and we've all you know. And the footage, the footage has been out. The footage has been in films, you know, Orson Welles put it in The Stranger, actual footage from the camps. And this guy's still like, yeah, no, that's, you know, that's my belief. That, that's why I haven't. Well, and then he turns around and starts, of course, Holocaust denial, which is still a bizarrely popular and uh, tolerated thing, I think. Yeah, I believe uh, there was a guy nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago. It goes by the name of Mel Gibson, and his father is an ardent holocaust denier and i don't think that the acorn falls too far from the tree it's hard to say with mel you never know uh, I, I i you don't know what that guy's thinking at any given time i don't think it is a perennial thing and you know sometimes it's i guess you you know you you think i guess these people just can't deal with what other people with similar beliefs actually did or something, but maybe that's the charitable view. I guess it is the charitable view. I think these are just awful people and when you get down to it. So like I was saying, we use Pauline as our way to get into all of these situations, one of them being the newsreel, which we see the rally at Trafalgar, as well as some other things. You talked about the historical reenactment of the um, – what is the name of the – actual event has a name but it was basically where people agreed was that around christmas time am i getting that all right yeah yeah it was a it was a christmas little christmas detente and where they 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 played some footy and um i don't know baked each other cakes or something you know it was all all together and you know monty python of course has, has rung this through the ringer and so have many other people since then but it was the idea was it was a much more genteel war even though of course it was a hideous war with uh, terrible mustard gas and everything else and making life in the trenches hellish. But um, there was this illusion, I guess, of gentility uh, that that newsreel is, is sort of seizing on and trying to create this illusion of, uh, of near constant British German harmony throughout history. And she gets talked to about nationalist socialism. She ends up joining the, what they call it, the Immediate Action Organization, which sounds like it's basically a front for the Nazi organization. And there's a great training montage where not only is she learning stuff about the human body, but she also learns how to fu- uh, how to fire a gun. I was just like, okay, how often is that going to come up? But apparently it's going to come up quite often. Then she also gets to get reunited with an old friend of hers, and that's where we get introduced to that Sebastian Shaw character that you mentioned before, Dr. Fletcher. And I almost thought at first that the movie was going to take a right turn and suddenly it was going to be Dr. Fletcher's movie. But I was really glad that they stayed away from that and that they moved away from him, I think twice and came back to what his situation was and that it's 
the first time we don't know that there is a wounded soldier in the other room and he might not even be there at that point. But when she comes back again, there is this wounded soldier there. And then she goes to get morphine for him. She actually has this moment of humanity being a caregiver, goes to get morphine. And then when she comes back, she finds uh, a a soldier out in front of the house and a very ominous looking car and people being led into the car. And I think that's the last time we ever see him, but Sebastian, Sebastian Stan, um, for me, he is always going to be known as Anakin Skywalker when they pull Darth Vader's mask off. But I was so surprised to see him show up and he has such a great face. He is fascinating to watch. Well, the rest of the film, you know, maybe doesn't quite pinpoint where the film actually stands. So it's hard sometimes to kind of pivot where, you know, where are these guys, what are these guys thinking about what's going on? And I think part of that is to do with their sort of their age and ranging between 16 and 20 odd. But the bits with when Sebastian Shaw basically turns up and says, here are the beliefs. This is why it's wrong. And this, and also this is why it's so insidious, which is what I quite, another thing I quite like about this film is the idea that you have to be a little bit not a little bit fascist to fight fascism and it and it reminds me of course of that wonderful scene in uh, life and death of colonel blimp when anton warbuck's character warbuck's character yeah is is talking about you know he's giving the speech about you didn't learn the lesson you can't play by the rules of cricket and all that kind of stuff it reminds me of that but it's so much blunter it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant the depressing thing about the whole Dr. Fletcher sequence is that when they're being rounded up and taken out of the house, you you know that they must have thought they must think Pauline gave them away when we know it was the upstairs neighbor and not Pauline at all. That is the last we see of of them. And of course, England is liberated sometime after, so we can hope for them. We can hope that they made it. But yeah, that liberation of England thing. Well, we'll talk about it. But there are some times where things happen in this movie and it takes me a while to put them together or I have to go out and do outside reading in order to put them together. I will say some of the connections in this movie, they're not handed to you on a silver platter. Maybe, you know, being an American, that's the way that I want things to be handed to me. So when she eventually gets shipped off to this country hospital, and there are these Eastern European workers, and she's giving them this uh, tetanus vir- uh, vaccination. And the next morning, what it took me a while to figure out is that she goes up to their room, their beds are empty, she goes downstairs, is walking around, and then finds a mass grave where these people have been buried. It took me a long time to finally figure out that's what happened. That she, in fact, had killed them by injecting them. Um, and... Yeah, and hadn't been told that uh, that's what she was doing. It's it's quite a sequence. I enjoy the film enough to give it the benefit of the doubt that what it feels like to me is that we're piecing the information together in a lot of areas, like Pauline would be. So this wouldn't be a character who is aware of exactly what's going on because she'll be watching news reports that are not broadcasting the truth for the whole story certainly and there are moments where you do kind of feel as lost as she is and I think that works quite well as she, because it kind of puts you into her shoes in a way in which she's kind of fumbling her way through both the practicalities of life but also the kind of philosophical and 
moral questions of what she's doing because she like, like you said earlier she the, the narrative is a series of happenstance isn't it it's not she's not propelling anything forwards i mean her actions have consequences her actions are never kind of positive actions with kind of a forward momentum term uh, they're always kind of knock-on effects of, of everything else but I, and i think the film does a, a good job and i'm i'm so charmed by the way the film was put together but i'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt that that's what they were aiming for Oh, absolutely. I would, I would certainly join you in that. And it's difficult. I mean, they, that, that it has any coherence at all is, uh, you know, having been shot by teenager years is amazing, but it does have coherence narratively and philosophically, uh, which is, which is doubly amazing. Um, yeah, that they were scrambling every weekend for every pound that they put into this film and that they're still scrambling years into it and trying to do this. And I should say too, you know, I talked about that footage that I was watching earlier where they still didn't have Pauline as the protagonist. They started to shoot this film multiple times and then just kept having to scrap it and then move on to the next. And eventually they managed to get some financing from uh, Tony Richardson, the filmmaker. And eventually they started to get short ends being donated to them from Stanley Kubrick from uh, his shooting of Dr. Strangelove. So it was just really like every day they didn't necessarily know what was going to happen with this project and they're working their day jobs molo ends up working on some actual movies while he's doing this and so he's got to worry about that schedule as well and just keeping actors i mean keeping an actor for a month is something but they're keeping actors for years at at times with this i mean especially with pauline and yeah then they actually get a real actor with Sebastian Stan and then they're using uh, just people that they meet for some of the other characters and you never know what you're going to get when it comes to uh, amateur actors. I mean, yeah, this whole thing was just amazing that it actually came together and that there is coherence at all. So I wasn't necessarily trying to complain about the film. It's just that there are times where I'm just like, now what's happening now? Oh, okay. I guess I can kind of get this. So like the end of the film, I was just like, okay, did what happen? was what i think just happened and then had to read about it i was like okay yeah i did i was right but it, again it's not just like okay now this is going to happen now this is going to happen i mean yeah pauline is not the kind of character to be like i'm going to take down the whole nazi regime from the inside and go from there she's not that type of a character she's not going to lock people in a movie theater and set them on fire no. Um, and the interesting thing, uh, the, one of the little connections I made um, watching the film uh, with Sebastian Shaw, and you might want to re- re-record yourself saying Sebastian Shaw, Mike, because you were calling him Sebastian Stan. Oh, well, he's not the same guy from oh. the Avengers? He's not Winter Soldier? Oh, no. man. I thought he looked very familiar. He's, well, he does look familiar because he's, of course, Anakin Skywalker, whom we know from the... Uh, the three prequels to the Star Wars. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, from, from Return of the Jedi and uh, wearing a, a helmet designed by John Molo, Andrew Molo's brother, which was based on German uniforms. So there's those little connections that are so delightful in cinema. So you were talking, Mike, about not being able to make connections. I think conversely, there are moments in this film where you really see them hit their stride as, as filmmakers. The training montage in particular is a really good training montage. 
I really like it. I, everything from the sort of the structure they've given it to the way it's shot, and it's certainly one of the nicer looking bits of the film. I think that's probably some of the Doctor Strange love ends coming into play there. Um, but there are these lovely moments where you can see him hitting their stride, and they coincide, I think, with when they're hitting their stride ideologically, because the training montage is lift. You know, that's pretty much in every 1950s war movie you've ever seen, and then the. I think the really interesting thing about it is it kind of gets you on side with her. And then at the end of it, when she's she's talking again with one of her superiors, you're like, oh, hang on a minute, they're Nazis. I shouldn't be getting into it. But I like the way they use film and they use um, sort of the trope of the montage, uh, the, the training sequence to kind of pull us into her world, get us rooting for her a bit. And then again, you, you suddenly kicked back out of it at the end. And I think as well, it made me think about all those training montages and it kind of reminds you that what you're seeing is given to you as a, you know, ah, oh, this is great. They're, they're building a team. They're becoming better people. But it's also, you know, obviously, it's, it, training montages do show the breakdown and the militarization of a person as well, which is what's going on here. But I, 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 it's one of my favorite sequences in the, in, in the film. I think it's very interesting. And in the screening I did, it even got a few, you know, you could tell people were getting into it because it got a couple of laughs. Like when she sat down to get the coffee and has to immediately go again, people really got into it. And then you cut to a fascist and you're like, oh, yeah, oops. We, we should talk a little bit about how good the film does often look. And, and that's thanks, I suppose, to, uh, in large part, I guess, to Peter Sashitsky, the uh, cinematographer, who I don't know how much of the film he was on. He's credited as the as the DP for the film, so I would imagine most of it. But there are some very s- cinematic in the movie, especially, I mean, there's one sequence where there's a, you know, one of the officers, the fascists giving one of his talks, and there's a beautiful shot of light streaming in from a window. You can tell that... Uh, that Sashinsky knew his stuff even then. And, and of course you can certainly understand why, you know, Peter Watkins would hire him to shoot the war game. Yeah. I know particularly that scene of the fascist funeral. I don't know if that's the same scene that you're talking about, but that is so brilliantly lit and just looks terrific. And apparently he wasn't, uh, at least according to Brownlow in his book, uh, he was very confident at first. And then there were certain times where Brownlow and Molo would throw things at him and he would kind of hesitate for a little bit, maybe even converse with his father, who's also a cinematographer, and then come up with an idea and then be able to execute it brilliantly. So yeah, there are moments of this film that look terrific. I wish that the sound was as good in certain parts. I did manage to find some subtitles for this, which helped out a lot, though the subtitles weren't necessarily translated into English or whatever as well as they could, because there is one part where uh, Pauline was saying that uh, this woman is very sweet. And rather than saying that she was very sweet, it gets translated or put on the subtitles as she's delicious. So it's a little bit different kind of a meaning. Well, there are a lot of privations, a lot of privations in the post-war world. So maybe she was delicious. That funeral scene is interesting because it kind of, it's kind of Riefen style on a budget in a weird way because it's got all of the stuff we're used to from those propaganda movies as well. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating, the sort of insight into budget filmmaking, I think, where they've really identified, you know, what are the elements that make that make this uh, this particular piece of footage interesting? Well, obviously, the uniforms, formations, and f- fires interesting, yeah. But they've picked out the elements and they've reproduced them on a budget. It's r- really well done, I think. 
Well, they actually used some real German soldiers and, and or people that were soldiers as consultants on the movie as well, which is a little kind of scary, but people that were now living over in England at the time, and they're just like, does this look right? And be able to get real critiques from people that were actually there and part of the German machinery. I suppose they could bring their own uniforms, probably, so it helped with budget as well. It, yeah, that, that stuff's fascinating when you read uh, how it happened here. Just the contacts they had with these guys who, like you say, were just in it, just had hadn't gone. Some of them hadn't gone home after being after being held in um, in the UK, and so it was quite. It, it's an interesting thing, but to get these guys coming out and yeah, I'll dress up, and I, I you know, just off the side, I do think. World War Two is interesting from a sort of reenactment point of view because there is a particular fascination with those uniforms and you know uh, that equipment amongst kind of reenactment communities. I I bet um, German World War Two uniforms are the the most highly appreciated within a reenactment circles. Well, it's a funny thing. I, I interviewed Udo Kier once, and uh, Udo Kier told uh, he, he hadn't he hadn't ever put on a Nazi uniform until he did that. Um, I guess what was it? A trailer in in um, Grindhouse. Werewolf women of the SS. That's right. And he said once he put it on, he suddenly understood, or at least to a degree, understood the the attraction, the power of you know uh nazism because you put on that uniform you feel powerful and then the whole the whole thing kind of uh infects you so that was an interesting you know you, you idea just the idea that putting on one of these uniforms can can set you in that direction well and one of these days i'm going to do an episode on the night porter and i think that and as well as a lot of other things help kick off the whole idea of nazi uniforms as being almost a fetish item inside of the fetish community and i know there's a great documentary out there called i think it's called stalags which is dirty novels written in Hebrew that were written in Israel and it was basically like turning the table it was it was it was almost night porter esque in so far as it was men or women being held in Nazi camps and this real sexualization of the Nazi officers. So it's really kind of sick when you think about it being done in Israel, but it's one of those like weird power dynamic things where some people get off on it. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's no no end of uh, Nazi exploitation movies too to look at from Italians and Germans. Oh yeah, and the mixture of like a Caligula and Hitler, you know, just kind of putting those two things together, where it was just like, oh, we're going to have sex with Nazis, Gestapo's last orgy kind of thing. The DVD of this is phenomenal. I managed to pick that up from um, Amazon.co.uk, and it's got both the Blu-ray and the DVD, and surprisingly, it played in my DVD player without any sort of like region hacking kind of thing, at least the, the DVD part of it. I don't know about the Blu-ray. And that's got a ton of extras on there, including a great interview with Kevin Brownlow, where he talks about the making of the film, and it's almost how it happened here condensed into a 65-minute interview view. And one of the questions that he had was, was this movie too far ahead of its time? You know, was this coming out in 65, 66, was this too early? You know, he was talking about the idea of controversy. 
And that controversy in 66 was a lot different than controversy even five years later, where one is a bad thing and the other one might be more of a, a notable thing. You know, oh, the controversial movie and be able to put that on the poster as opposed to this movie is controversial. We are going to ban it. Um, and I'm curious, what do you guys think as far as if this movie had come out, say, in 76 or even 72 rather than 66, would this might have played better? By the mid-70s, things like the Night Porter were out, and there would have been a different set of expectations on this film. Like, she would have been expected to probably be a little more proactive, uh, to have sex with somebody, as we were talking about, um, to, do, to do a number of different things. And um, I suppose it would have been received in a different way, but I think it is a perfect product of its time. I mean, imagine if they had managed to make it on a on a condensed schedule rather than over eight years and it had been released in 1958 or nine you know that would have been something i don't know how it would have been received then i mean it is very sort of strikingly different from the world war ii cinema that was coming out at the time and sort of just before it because i mean you know when you think wider than this film of what is the representation of world war ii and nazism sort of on the cinema screen and it's you know it's all um sort of British officers winning the war uh, with the occasional chippy uh, little private. Um, there, there are some very interesting films, but it's all people being very stoic. And to, to watch a film in which people have kind of just, yeah, all right then, go on, we'll we'll just get along to get along, I think is is probably quite ahead of its time in a way. But also this is a film that, uh, as most films, could only be made sort of in the particular moment, in the particular moment it's in, because... You know, the life of rationing was a drag. The life of London constantly being reconstructed uh, was a drag. And, of course, we have Mosley and such is very much still in the public consciousness. And, you know, the the abdication as well, that had happened, even though that was earlier, obviously. Still, you know, people still talk about that. There's still controversy today around sort of Wallace Simpson. So that stuff would have been seen. And the other thing about England in the sort of 60s and 70s was it always kind of felt about a decade behind when you see footage from England you could you know there's like a 20 year stretch where you could place it it's not until sort of the 70s you know late 60s 70s when you start to see England uh you know newsreel footage from an England that seems present if you if you get my meaning so it it is a very I, I can imagine the reaction at the time people not being able to quite take stock of it because you know, although we've, uh, we've had a, you know, we've, we've obviously gone through the Second World War and all that stuff. And we know who the good guys are. We know who the bad guys are. This is a, a very murky film. And for British cinema, I think sort of 1969 to 71 was a big explosion in countercultural narratives in a way. And you've got a lot of films like the work of Tony Richardson, things I think, um, Charge of Lightgate is 68. And that's absolutely scathing about Britishness. And it was, you know, and it was, you know, and it was quite controversially received at the time in some quarters. So I can imagine this little kind of this film, this little upstart film from a couple of, um, you know, a, a couple of students have made on their on their weekends. People would that's how people would view it to come along and say, you know, you could fall for this. We're very close to it, but you could, you know, we could easily imagine Britain getting on. And because it, as well, it's not a resistance tale. 
and in, in you know the main thrust of it isn't resistance and we'd all even today to suggest we wouldn't resist i think um, people still find that kind of a scandalous suggestion yeah well we all we all love to believe we would you know be at the forefront of the resistance and uh you look at i mean and here's another thing that would have been very much uh still in the public consciousness at that time is the Vichy government in France and how 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 little of France really was involved in the resistance in terms of percentage. I mean, you know, they, uh, they formed a, a government uh, to collaborate with the Nazis, Pétain, and uh, they had this this entire seat of government in the south of France. And, you know, you, uh, movies that dealt with that fairly realistically would include things like The Train, like Frankenheimer's film The Train, where Burt Lancaster who very much hates the Nazis, also wants nothing to do with the resistance for a great part of that film. That was the reality. I mean, there were there were not very many resistance fighters, even in France, which was occupied almost immediately, of course. It's funny, while they were trying to make this movie, they went to one studio and they said, oh, this is too similar to Went the Day Well, which I had never even heard of until I started researching this movie. But I know, Winter, you brought that up earlier. Yeah, Went the Day Well is a... A good little attempted Nazi invasion flick. It comes out of Ealing. Uh, it's from the Ealing Films, uh, directed by Calvacanti. And it's a good, I, I tell you what, it's a, it's a good little movie. And it, it's, it's very British. And there's a nanny using an axe on someone. It's, it's, it's fantastic fun. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's, it's a very different type of story. Cause in that you've got the, you know, it's the fifth columnist. Who is the um, you know? There's, there's a spy in their midst. It, it's not people turning over and, and accepting. It's it's everybody. It's the shopkeeper, the church warden. Everybody is standing up to fight the Nazis. You know, as the national story would have it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great. It is. A, I, I'll echo that. It's a great film, and that that axe scene stays with me. I saw the <laughs> film. I've, it must have been 20 years ago. I saw Went the Day Well, but um, I still very much remember when that old lady picks up the axe and just brutally hacks the uh, the Nazi soldier to death. It's great. And uh, a lot of the film is them trying to get messages out to tell the rest of England that they've been taken over because it's, you know, they've apparently settled on just taking over one town for the, for the nonce. It's almost cartoonish in, in like their efforts to get the message out are re- repeatedly stymied by just circumstance. It's a, it's a very, yeah, it's, it's a much more uh, fun movie than when, than uh, it happened here. One that it was made during the war, I found very interesting too. It was a 1942 picture. Yeah, and it's one of those great war pictures where they they were very good during the war about making films that brought everybody into the fight. So it's the villagers. It's you know, like I say, it's the postmistress. It's the you know, it's everyone in the village gets involved in thwarting this attempt. So it was one of those really nice, you know, blatant piece of uh, rabble rousing kind of uh, war propaganda. But ent- very entertainingly done, and it kind of it captures that that national message that needs to go out. That it's all hands on deck, uh, rather than just uh, the officer class, which is pretty much uh, British war cinema sort of from the nineteen fifties. And it's got a nice class message too, because I think it's the local laird is the is the one collaborator in their midst. The the uh, the rich the rich guy, you know, is the one who's down with the Nazi ideals, which is also historically not incorrect i would suggest well everybody wants to make money and if you have money you want to keep your money or make more money yeah it's funny that it was 1942 because i think it was right around the time that we finally 
stopped uh, the prohibition in the U.S. of saying anything bad about Hitler in films. And we actually started to get movies like To Be or Not To Be, where we could actually criticize Hitler or make fun of Hitler, uh, which had been forbidden in Hollywood up until around that point. Actively forbidden, do you think? Or just uh, just not encouraged? From what I understand, it was actively forbidden or very, very highly discouraged, let's say, that maybe uh, scripts weren't approved that spoke poorly of Mr. Hitler. Well, 1942 would have been an interest, like the, the difference in attitude in Europe and America would have been huge at that point because the, the Canadians, the British, the French, all, everyone had been fighting the war for three years at that point. And um, the, America had only just gotten into it. So the, the war pictures... I mean, there. You know, I I think uh, of Forty Ninth Parallel, which was another attempt to say, you know, look, um, this could be, you know, washing up on your shores any day now. You might want to get involved a little bit. I think a Northern Pursuit, I guess, the Errol Flynn movie might have been the same, the same deal. But of course, Forty Ninth Parallel is the uh, is the big one, and and that's um, since they they troop right down into my city, the Nazis in that movie. I've always uh, thought of it very uh, fondly. A big thing because I, I remember um, reading about the uh, when, when you get to the Red Scare uh, after the war, of course. Um, you know the phrase "prematurely anti-fascist" is often used against people. I think it was it was used against Orwell at one point as well um, by his critics. But the idea that you know you're looking back from the fifties and in the full, in the thirties and forties, someone was prematurely anti-fascist is very. It's just the worst type of revisionism. Wow, that is really, I mean, to be prematurely anti-fascist, I mean, <laughs> like there's a good time to be anti-fascist. It's making a comeback, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I was very happy to hear Brown, though, say that he was influenced by George Orwell as well as Orson Welles, in that the whole idea of the newsreel sequence was coming out of the opening of Citizen Kane, and that he looked at Wells as being kind of a hero by making his own film by the age that he was the, of 24. And here's Brownlow wanting to do the exact same thing and succeeding. The two connections with Wells kind of sprung to my mind when I was watching this film. Uh, first of all, obviously, it's the newsreel stuff. And it's it's sort of one of my favorite newsreels after the Citizen Kane uh, time on the march uh, newsreel. But also, there is Wells's use of actual concentration camp footage during the in, in the stranger as well this film made me think back to that because there is a there is a shot in this film of a ghetto and i can't figure out if that's actual footage or it appears to be looking through barbed wire or if it's a reconstruction and it's only there for the briefest of moments and i think it is it the only time we talk about victimized classes within this film it's not the only time because the not the real life Nazis, of course, start talking about uh, what they would like to do. You know, one one of them wants yes, to send course, all the yeah. Jews to Madagascar. But I think the uh, I think that shot must have been their own shot because the sign, the ghetto sign, is in German and English. Yes, of course it is. Perhaps it's just uh, just my own inner inattention there. But that's how good the verite footage is in this film. But I mean, one of you said before, you know, you could, is that real footage from World War One? Is it not? It's absolutely fascinating stuff. It is. It's absolutely, and it's just, it's so impressive. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the World War One in quotation marks, footage that they have looks like they'd run it through an old camera, taken it out, stomped on it a little bit, you know, to, to give it an old-fashioned look. And um, 
really they did it perfectly. It's it's so impressive. Yeah, and they did have a real old camera for that. I read about them getting uh, their hands on one, and it was just like, oh, this will be perfect for this sequence. So again, it's like, we have these tools. How are we going to use these tools? And pretty much anything and everything that they found, they would try to use in some way. It was just really inventive filmmaking. To bring back in Awesome Wells, I did read the quote from Wells the other day that, um, you know, uh, a lack of boundaries is the enemy of artistic invention. And I think this film really bears that out because these guys have got so creative by you know what what do we have to do to get a shot what do we have to do to make you know to build this particular scene and what scenes can we include okay how much money have we got what uniforms do we have and and what equipment can we get from a camden market stall it's really inspiring All right, we're going to take a break and play the first part of our interview with cinematographer Peter Shushinsky, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. The sun dips down under the old pier. Darkness fills the sky. Suddenly, you see glowing eyes rise from the shadowy depths. Female hands with razor-sharp claws dragging you into the night waves. The debut novel from David Irons. From Cosmic Egg, an imprint of John Hunt Publications. Night Waves. Can you survive it? Available now at all good bookshops. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more. With ten free gifts. First you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly fake ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Were you always destined to be a director of photography? Always. I wouldn't say always. Not, not from birth. But I, I became very interested in I became very interested in photography very 
really early on because I had, my father was a cinematographer and a photographer as well. He had cameras around the house and would take photographs of us children. And I was witness to him disappearing into his dark room very often when he was at home. And I wanted to know what was happening in that dark room. And that was really the start of my interest in photography. There was always something very magical to me as far as shooting that developer down and then being able to put that piece of paper in developing liquid and see the image come to life. Absolutely. It seemed like a, a, a magical trick. And I, I wanted to be able to do that too. So from a very early age, I started to develop prints because my father gave me, in order to keep me out of his dark room, he gave me some paper and um, chemical which could be used in the daylight. It was quite, I think it was called gold toning solution. I was able to make contact prints in the, in the garden at the age of six or seven. What got you interested in motion pictures? I think as soon as I saw my first image, and this was at a time before people had television sets at home. I, I was given a treat on my birthday. A friend of my father's had a small collection of silent films and a, and a, a millimeter projector, probably it was nine millimeters. And he came around armed with some films of Charlie Chaplin, silent films. And that, uh, I'm totally entranced by the moving image, especially Chaplin's films. As a child, I built, built a, a, a toy cinema, an imaginary cinema out of wooden bricks, and it had a, an aperture for the for a, an image to be put in in replace, as as it were, a, in the position of the screen. And my father gave me a piece of waste film from work. I put a flash behind it, and I imagined myself into the cinema. And I think I held that image in my subconscious uh, for my for my lifetime. How big was that cinema that you made? Oh, it was tiny. I looked. It, I was able to lie on the floor and look through one end of it. Um, it was only a few inches big. I'm sure. <laughs> I know it happened here took a long time to be produced, and I'm curious, when did you get involved with it, and how did you get involved with it? It was just a, a series of, of uh, chance encounters and coincidences, really, that, that led to it. I had started work in a, a small film company in London, which did TV commercials and documentary films, and... I moved over from the commercial wing to the uh, documentary department. I was probably 19 years old, and I was a, a second camera assistant. I met in, in the process of my work there an editor. This was Kevin Brown, and we talked a bit now and then. Uh, then I disappeared because I went to the United States and to Latin America, First of all, as an assistant cameraman on a series of documentaries and in, in the United States. And after that, I was lucky enough to be asked by the producer of the documentaries if I would go to South America as a document, as a cameraman with a journalist. We would be a, a two man band making documentary films. I 
took my still camera with me because I'd been taking photographs in London streets and, uh, and other places in a serious manner from the age of, from a very young age. And I took lots of photographs on my travels as a documentary film cameraman in Latin America. I brought back the films after a year, I spent a year in Latin America. I brought them back to, to London, developed them and printed them myself. And I happened to show them to meet up with Kevin Browner and showed him my saw photographs, which uh, he was impressed with by some reason. He liked them and said, look, I'm making a film on weekends and sometimes during the weekdays as well. And I need a cameraman. Would you like to be director of photography on my film? And it was a film that imagined Britain occupied by German troops and a German administration during the war called It Happened Here. That's how it happened for me. That's how I, uh, I became involved with his filming. He'd already made uh, a small section of it, which was a kind of fake documentary newsreel of German troops marching around London. But that, that was all he'd made. He was preparing to make the, uh, the dramatic part of the actors in it. And that, that's what I got involved with. Well, how was that for you to go from second assistant director to all of a sudden being the cinematographer for this narrative-slash-documentary film? I'd, uh, okay, I didn't quite explain properly that I'd gone to the United States as a second assistant on a, a series of documentaries which would be actually being made for German TV. And I spent then spent a year in America as a, a, a DOP on documentary films, but I, I had to do everything. I had to be my own assistant and my own gaffer, and I did the sound as well. So I had some experience, but I had no experience of recreating dramatic scenes in interiors. So I had uh, it was really a plunge into the dark for me to to make this film. I had to teach myself as I went along how to be light which was appropriate for each scene. So he was, so Kevin Brown had asked somebody with some experience myself. I had some experience, but really no experience of working on uh, fictional f films and recreating dramatic situations. I mean, and you're doing this on weekends and whenever you can grab time during the week? Yes. I was still living at home, so my expenses were almost zero. Oh, well, that's good at least. Yes, yes. And I looked upon it as an exciting learning experience. I loved films. I loved the cinema um, and would go from 12 on my own to see movies. And I saw movies from all, all the great directors of the time. So I, I, I knew film through a second-hand experience, if you like, being a member of the audience. But I'd never shot a movie that must have been a pretty intense experience to be kind of thrown into the fire like that. Yeah, it was. I'm sure I was anxious, both anxious and excited at the same time. But it gave me a, a really intensive learning experience. And by the end of it, I had a visiting card, if you like. I could say to people, look, I may only be 22 years old, but I've already shot a movie, which was unheard of in those days because working in movies was... Um, very, you have you followed a very clear path. You you had to 
be a second assistant normally. You had to be a second assistant for between seven and ten years. And if you were lucky, you moved up to become a, a focus puller or a first assistant AC, assistant cameraman, for ten years. And perhaps by the time you got to 35 or 40, you might be lucky enough to move along and become a camera operator and eventually, if you were very fortunate, this was the normal practice, you could um, start shooting films as a director of photography in your 40s. But to be 22 was unheard of and caused me some problems because people looked at me and said, where, where has he come from? He doesn't know what he's doing, surely. But I, um, I somehow I thought, it was normal at the same time. I didn't realize how lucky I was. How was it working with uh, Kevin Brown, though, and Andrew Molo? I didn't. I didn't think any any real problems. Uh, we were all. I had to do much more than I than the director of photography would normally do. I had to do the focus, and I had to carry the lights around, be the be the electrician. We were all just fully, fully preoccupied with, with making this film and full of excitement about it. I'm trying to remember if Kevin had worked with actors before. That must have been a new experience for him as well. It, it was, yes. He, he, he was a, a good editor. And editors leave and lead an insulated li- a life, insulated from the actual production side of, of the film. So he had not worked with actors before, no. What were some of your favorite memories of working on the film? Just the sense of being of being of togetherness. I'm I can't single out scenes at the moment and tell you this scene or that scene was particularly exciting to film. But it was a sense of discovering every day how to do things. Nobody had taught uh, any of us how to direct or how to photograph a film. What was it like for you when the film was over? When the film was over, the most exciting moment was when it opened uh, on a big screen in London on in a cinema in Piccadilly Circus. And that was the title of the film that I'd worked on. And I was just beginning my career. That that was the best moment. Peter Watkins had something to do with it happened here, but I can't remember what it was. Well, Peter Watkins uh, had worked as uh, another editor in, in the same company as Kevin Brownlow. So I must have met Peter Watkins probably before I went to the United States. I could be wrong, but I think I think that that, that is how the one of his movies, Privilege, his first really main mainstream film. When Peter Watkins was planning to shoot his film Privilege. He turned to me because he'd seen it happened here, and perhaps he felt more comfortable working with me myself, who had not worked on any uh, full-scale professional movies. I think that he felt uh, less threatened by that idea. There was a lot of, if memory serves, a lot of pageantry, and I just remember it being, a, even though it was a smaller budget, it felt like a very big movie. Yes, it had some, uh, one spectacular sort of rally scene in a stadium. Yes, and that film led to me somehow being asked to work with George Lucas many years later, although I didn't realize it was that film, but he, George Lucas saw that film in, when he was at film school and was impressed with that uh, scene in a football stadium, which I 
lit part, partially with uh, conventional lights, but also with sodium flares. Yeah, that movie, it still packs such a punch, and I find it to be more relevant as time goes on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He was a very in, in socially engaged director, and very in, innovative uh, in, his, in his style. Well, yeah, and um, you shot another one for him, if memory serves, The Gladiators. That's that's right. I think it had two titles. One title was The Peace Game, because Pete Watkins had made a movie which had ultimately been banned, and it was called The, the War Game. The BBC, which commissioned it, judged it to be too frightening for audiences to, to, to see. It imagined the prelude of an, atom, an atomic attack uh, on... Britain. Um, but I didn't shoot that one. I shot Privilege, of course, and then I shot uh, the uh, the Gladiators, which imagined, which was also uh, very prescient. It, it um, imagined a moment in time, which in the future, in which wars were not fought, would not be fought on the battlefield, but would be fought on television between teams of uh, opposing opposed uh, gladiators. And I think that that idea was borrowed, stolen, I almost said stolen, by a director who made a film called Rollerball. I haven't seen that film, but I think it did borrow the idea. I can definitely see that, yeah. Yeah, it was very bread and circuses for the the masses at that point, yes. Which came first for you, Figures in a Landscape or Leo the Last? Well... I'm trying to remember. I think it was Figures in a Landscape, definitely Figures in a Landscape. Uh, I don't know if I want to talk very much about that film because I didn't complete the film. Are you aware of that? No, I wasn't. I know it had a really troubled production. Yes, it it, it felt we fell behind, and often when schedules are not kept, fingers are pointed and somebody has to be fired and somebody has to go. It wasn't actually my fault, but I was the full guy. Right. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Peter Maydak uh, probably about a year or two ago about the film, and he was telling me just what a awful experience it was for him as well. I don't know what Peter Maydak did on the film anymore. He was supposed to direct it, and then he got booted off at oh, the I last see. minute. <laughs> I see, I see, yes. I see. I do have to commend you on Leo the Last, though. That the look of that film is just incredible. Oh, thank you so much. I don't know if one can find a, a decent copy of it anymore. Where did you find a, a copy? Oh, I managed to get it through possibly illegal means via the internet. <laughs> I see. I see. I found a, an Italian DVD of it, but. Um, I think it had English subtitles or an English track on it somewhere, but it it was taken off a VHS tape, obviously. So it's a terrible it's terrible quality. Just one or two films I've shot that are really almost impossible to get hold of. Going back and looking through John Borman's other films uh, of the time, and, and and even since then, he has such a great eye for color, and to make a such a muted film, it just looked. So nice. Well, his, yeah, he had this very exciting concept to make a color film in black and white. In other words, we shot it in color, but the only color in the film was intended to be the actors' faces because all the sets were uh, were painted in tones of gray and black. 
we tried to avoid using anything in color in the film. It must have been quite a difference between something like that and something like, say, a, a Rocky Horror Picture Show or a Listomania, yes, where the colors yes. are just amped up so much. Yes. Well, the, uh, the wonderful thing about working with John Bowman was that I felt that he had film in his blood. He, he really loved film and understood film, what the camera could do and what you could do with film in general. He's a, a really fine filmmaker. I was lucky enough to work with him twice, separated by 20 years. I do have to ask about your experience on Listomania, because that's one that I don't think gets nearly enough appreciation. It's such a strange film, but it's oddly very compelling. Yes, yes, okay, yes, I suppose it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I don't know what I can say about it. Um, It's a pretty silly film at the same time. Well, uh, Ken Russell is another person that I find possibly troubling, but also very visionary. What was it like working with him? I was very fortunate to to be asked to do this film because it gave me an experience of working on large sets with a good good designer. I hadn't up to then worked on a studio film with large sets. I had worked on a studio film, but not, not something as lavish as, as this. And Ken Russell, if he was one thing that interested him, it was the, the visuals of the film. And he spent a good part of the budget on on construction of sets which would strike the eye because he wanted his films to be visually striking. So that was marvelous for me as an opportunity. He was a, at the same time, uh, he could be very confrontational and argumentative and could shout at people. I learned how to shout back on that film, which, which was not in, within my nature at the time. I, I learned an awful lot on, on that film in different, in different ways. We're back and we're talking about It Happened Here. And I'm pretty sure that the title, It Happened Here, and I know they talked about how at one point the title was different uh, as they were going through production, but I'm pretty sure It Happened Here is a takeoff on Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, which came out a few years before that, which was talking about American fascism. And just as there's this kind of it's almost like a fanfic with this kind of alternate history. You know, we talked about uh, the man in the high castle and just, you know, there are these rewritings of history. What if Hitler won the war? What if the Japanese won the war? What if this battle went different? There's also a whole subgenre of literature and movies of what if fascism came to America? And it usually seems to center around that election right before FDR became president, where we have somebody else becoming president. Like in Philip Roth's uh, The Plot Against America, it was Charles Lindbergh who became president. Charles Lindbergh, who was very into this movement called America First, which seems to ring a bell for some reason. I can't quite put my finger on it. (laughs) I read uh, It Can't Happen Here 
uh, I was reading it on a trip to Washington, I think it was shortly after Obama had been elected. And I was like, boy, well, we all really dodged a bullet on this. Boy, that uh, thank goodness we got, you know, <laughs> we're moving away from this kind of thing. Little little, little did I know. That was an interesting time, the, uh, the 30s, because that was around the same time that the American Communist Party had its highest membership, its, uh, its highest visibility. It, it, it had a million votes. Eugene Debs got a million votes uh, that year or sometime shortly around that uh, around that period. At any rate, um, it seems like there were these two tensions really working in American society and uh, and which way would it go in the war and the New Deal and all all sorts of stuff pulled it in into what it what what may well end up being the the liberal stretch of America's uh, history or seen you know later later as such. Mm. I, I I really like it can't well like is perhaps the wrong word. Um, I I'm really impressed by it can't happen here. I I read it at the start of 2017. I can't wonder why that would have popped up as a suggested reading thing at that time. But it was it, it's it's a fascinating book. Um, of course, there's kind of the grand sweep of the narrative and. You know the obvious stuff like the the populism, the, the populist side of it. But the book starts with someone having a go at women not being in the home like they used to be. And my word, doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> and just, it just, but just that same progression was kind of, you know, was obviously happening at the home. You know, the, the kind of idea that you start off with. You know, you start off with a bit of bit of misogyny, and then you you kind of up upskill to fascism, etc. Um, but I, I really like it. Can't happen here. It's a it's a really interesting book, and I've got to say, Mike, I'm absolutely ashamed of myself that until you mentioned it, I did not put these two titles together at all. I mean, they're very similar in subject, obviously, but I just until you said, I said of course, it must have been named after that. Well, you know, in one. It can't, and the other, it did. So, you know, I understand. Yeah, it's a good rebuttal, but I, I did read somewhere where Brownlow claims he hadn't, wasn't familiar with the Sinclair Lewis book, which seems, yeah, I suppose it, at 18 years old, you're not aware of all of that much, so possibly that's true. Yeah, I mean, other than the idea of fascism taking over someplace, really, I mean, it is markedly different from that, and the way that the stories are told, the way that the characters are, I mean, there's quite a big difference when it comes to that. So, it, it I would be okay if, if he says I wasn't familiar, or maybe it just seeped into his unconscious. That's absolutely fine. But yeah, it can't happen here. It is such a great book. I was just floored. Uh, I actually listened to a performance of it, and it was just riveting stuff. And just to hear, this is 1935, I think, when Sinclair Lewis writes this, and it's before Huey Long ended up running for president in 1936. And all of his discussion of Huey Long, and this is before I saw All the King's Men and um, the actual movie called Huey Long, just all of these things where I was not that familiar with him. And wow, you know, this kind of folksy man of the people, very lonesome roads to talk about another film. Just this whole idea of, you know, oh, this folk hero, kind of like uh, like Greg Stilson from um, The Dead Zone. You know, oh, we're going to put this guy who's really going to take charge and can really bring us around to real American values. And then he ends up being a complete fascist who wants, you know, military police on the streets, wants to keep immigrants out, wants to, you know, turn back the time to 50 years ago. 
Wow, just riveting stuff that this came out in 1935. It's a running thing in possibly every society, but certainly American society, this this undercurrent, this, I guess it's a combination of a a desire for control in, in one's life. If your own life is feeling out of control, well, maybe you want to be controlled somewhat. Um, and, uh, there's, you know, there's a, there's a sympathy to authoritarianism in, in the, in American society, I guess, as well. Like, you know, you have, you don't have to look very far to find things like Dirty Harry and cops who, you know, take the law into their own hands and all of that, uh, all of those are offshoots of that same psychopathy. And apparently they wanted to make It Can't Happen Here into a movie when the galleys were published in 1935. And our friend uh, Joseph Breen of the Production Code Administration said that it was too, kind of to go back to an earlier topic, it was too anti-fascist. So again, we we can't be too anti-fascist apparently here in the U.S. or in the U.K. We really need to uh, keep our anti-fascism in check. Well, you know, the market is right, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I guess again, maybe he just pointed to the title and said, well, it's right there in the title. It can't happen here, so why make a movie out of it? And I did try to watch, there was a 1968 movie called Shadow on the Land, which uh, had an alternate title of United States, It Can't Happen Here. And I didn't really see a lot of It Can't Happen Here. It had an amazing cast, it had Jackie Cooper, it had... Gene Hackman, it had John Forsythe, and my God, was it a boring film. I could not get over just how dull this thing was. And it was supposed to be an exciting, you know, hey, we're getting this guy back from the fascists, and John Forsythe's trying to track us down, and blah, 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 and here's this priest who's played by Gene Hackman, and are you going to go with faith, or are you going to help out the real people? And yeah, I watched probably for like an hour, and I... Just ended up fast forwarding to about the end, and it ended the way that I thought it would, and I was bored out of my head. In the forty minutes you missed, there were a lot more undescript corridors and rooms with people chatting in them. Yeah, I mean the problem with it is it's it's not about anything apart from the immediate situation in which the characters find themselves. So it doesn't at all really delve into. The fascinating thing in It Can't Happen Here, which is, how does it happen here? This is just a, hey, there's some bad guys. I mean, they could be, the the villains could be absolutely, you know, it could be anyone. It could be communists. It could be fascists. It could be, you know, pick, pick, what an absolute dish. But the the beginning, when they were, when they're raiding a facility, I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is different to the Sinclair Lewis. I don't remember this scene. And then, yeah, corridors and rooms. Yeah, and 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 Gene Hackman in a priest outfit, but really V is the exact same story with aliens instead of Nazis or or just fascists. Well, they're fascist aliens, I suppose, and hungry too. I do like though, but yeah, just one of my favorite little uh, tidbits I found out whilst looking into this was the television adaptation they were going to have called Storm Warnings. So that adaptation of it can't happen here to be produced as a television miniseries, but they say it was too cerebral. And it became V, literally became V. <laughs> so, so they went, they went from no, this is this is this is a bit too much. Let's go to David Icke version. <laughs> just like, oh my word! It's very not much different, except it has a little more excitement to it. V. 
that scene of, I think the character's name was Diana, when she reveals that she's an alien or something different by eating a rat, the whole fourth grade class talked about nothing else the whole next day. We were all on the edge of our seats. What the hell happened? Why did that lady eat a rat? That was pretty fantastic. I wish that they had just stuck to the miniseries, because I remember the TV series being really bad, and it ended up having this whole idea of the, it was like the crossbreed between the alien and the human, or something. Was the, I just remember they kept talking about the star child, and then when I tried watching that that series that had, I think it was Noah Wiley, and it was Aliens That Invaded Earth, and it was actually a pretty compelling series until I think they got to the second season, and they basically had their own version of The Star Child, and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. That ruined V in 1985, whenever the series came out. I don't need to sit through this again. I don't think I got beyond the original miniseries myself, but um, but another uh, a good take on that is, of course, They Live. That's worth... Uh a few words because again it's a very class conscious uh picture um it goes into you know the 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 link between fascism and just that you know the need to acquire wealth very tied in oh yeah and especially when they meet george buck flower again later and he's wearing the tuxedo and it's like come on into this room where all of these people are dressed in tuxedos and evening gowns and here's the aliens telling us how we can make some more money yeah, no one ever looked better in a tuxedo than George Buck Flower. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> and I know that Man in the High Castle is not on the air anymore, but we're still going through this whole idea of alternate history, which is surprisingly and scarily close to our current history with things like The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's like every day that goes on, it feels like we're getting closer to this alternate reality, which we should look at these things and be like, whew, man, I'm sure I'm glad it can't happen here. Yeah, it's just swooping up from the from from the south of uh, America, like a like like one of those maps of killer bees, you know, moving their way up. So the uh, BBC have just done a series called Years and Years, uh, which is uh, Russell T Davies, who used to uh, be the Doctor Who showrunner, and it's about a normal family, and it goes over a sort of a seventeen year span. And what you have in Years and Years is a populist politician rising to power. And turning the UK into a, a fascist, corporatist state. And it is so spot on that we were watching it at home. And one of the, the politician who rises to power says, you know, people just want someone who's plain speaking. And you know what? The next morning on the news, there's Boris Johnson saying, people just want politicians to speak their mind whilst, you know, discussing how he insulted people who are wearing burqas, etc. And it's just a, it's so petrifyingly prescient, but a, a, a cracking piece of, uh, of very blunt, I think, BBC television, but really, because it's Russell T Davies, it's very smart. It kind of fuses that kind of thing. It's, it can't happen here filtered through a kind of a black mirror type lens, if you're familiar with that shape. But, oh my word. I mean, I suppose what's, the positive side of all this authoritarianism is stuff is starting to resurface again. So um, a face in the crowd has just come out on Criterion, which I've not been able to get a decent copy of here in the UK ever on Blu-ray or DVD. So that's, that's popped back out, but it's these bits are up and you know, the amount of times I see Greg Stilson clips being bandied about on, you know, Facebook and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all, you know, oh, gosh, 
it's almost as if we were warned about this. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing is, though, with the Greg Stolson connection and not to mention uh, Lonesome Roads, these guys are brought down by a little piece of media. And one, in one case, it's a photograph of Greg Stolson holding, you know, blocking the gunman with a baby. And in the other case, it's, mm. it's Lonesome Roads saying, oh, my, you know, my followers are a bunch of a uh, bunch of rubes or whatever it is, he says. And um, <laughs> and 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 that's happened you know, our equivalents have happened a thousand times with uh, your orange-skinned uh, demagogue there, and nothing seems able to bring that guy down in, in terms of scandal. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Yeah, I mean, one of the... Uh interesting ideas in things like it can't happen here is they all do have this silver lining that these uh these guys do tend to eat themselves and i know in the uk i mean <laughs> this is still pretty dreadful but a lot of sort of the tin pot youtube fascists who have kind of popped up running as a you know running for political office they have all you know absolutely burnt themselves um because they can't go five minutes without absolutely showing their true reptilian selves to go back to the i know recently there was an episode of the new twilight zone the jordan peele produced twilight zone called the wonderkind which was really kind of like all the episodes of the twilight zone 2019 too heavy-handed uh and had a very bratty kid becoming president and just throwing tantrums all the time he would probably get on twitter and tweet at three o'clock in the morning if he could but i have to say going back to the black mirror that there's a better episode of the black mirror that speaks about what i think is a similar thing called the waldo moment and the whole idea of the uk mm-hmm. having a, uh, a a cartoon character be prime minister that i thought was much better television and much more savvy than the wunderkind so it was about Canada. We'll be there in two weeks, I think. Is that when yeah. Boris oh, Johnson's yeah, yeah, there? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That's. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Dumpster fire is the official uh, designation on that one. We've been burning that dumpster for the last three years now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are just a colony after all, Mike. We're not there yet in Canada. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a, a, a halfway decent fellow is prime uh, is prime minister but that may not last beyond uh, october so we'll see where we go here you guys got to get into this game it's so much fun i mean the australians are right there with us just been envying you guys envying you guys so much for the last uh, two years it's it's uh, crazy all right well on that cheery note we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show at precisely 1900 hours i entered the cabin of the spacecraft and settled back for liftoff Ready, Kelvin? Ready. Good luck. Donatas Banyonis. Vladislav Dvorjetsky. Natalia Bondarchuk. Play the leading roles in Solaris. The scene is somewhere in the cosmos. The time, the distant future. The place, a planet yet unknown to us. Mm-hmm. 
based on the novel by Stanislav Lem. doesn't exist. She is dead. Accept it, Kelvin, or you are lost. Let us take you with us to Solaris, planet of mystery, embodiment of man's latent conflict with the unknown. Man, face to face with his conscience and with his past. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, who gave us the classic film Andrei Rublev. A studio must film production. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Winter and Kalem. Kalem, what is happening in your world these days? Uh, well, I'm still uh, riding the crest of the wave of the Dick Miller wave. I uh, had a, a book on Dick Miller published late last year, and that's um, still a thing out there. So, um, because Dick Miller is, of course, a perennial in everyone's heart, I think. I'm working on another book uh, that has to do with uh, feature films and the, you know, will they last? It's a, it's a, I suppose it's something that a lot of people have been talking about. I think the New York times just did a big series on that very topic, but I'm looking at the, the specifically the form of the feature film um, where it came from um, and, and where it might be going and uh, making some films. I'm working on a, 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 John Cassavetes type uh, project and um, about uh, uh, the, the best dancer in the world and uh, hopefully some horror things because that's really where my true heart lies, um, horror movies. So that is occupying my world at the moment. Where's the best place for people to keep up on your projects? I don't really have one specific place, unfortunately, because I'm not a terribly well-organized person when it comes to that. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm awful at self-promotion, as you can tell. Uh, but the Dick Miller book is, is certainly the best book that's ever been published on the subject of Dick Miller. I can say that without sounding too boastful, I think, because it's the only one. But... Um, yeah, I, I no, I don't know. Just uh, keep uh, keep an eye out for my name if you can spell it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, yeah, run out and buy the the Dick Miller book. I hope. Uh, I mean, I'm 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 talking it up a little bit, but I am proud of that. It might be the best thing I've ever done. So that's why I'm hoping that people will read it because he had a fascinating life and he was an amazing guy, as it turned out. Well, yeah, you should be proud of it. 
I, I am. <laughs> I, uh, as a Canadian, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I am. And Winter, what's keeping you busy these days? So uh, I run a uh, film night here in Guernsey. We do sort of a monthly thing where we screen films that our local cinemas have missed. Um, so I think on the day, well, we screen older films as well. So the, I think the day this one goes out, we'll be uh, screening Delicatessen. So if you're ever in Guernsey, do pop in. If you're not in Guernsey, I do say to people, buy a ticket anyway. I don't mind. It's absolutely fine. It keeps us going. Um, but we're just about to, we've been running for about a year now, uh, the night school clamor de cinema. And, um, we're just about to start our own podcast where we talk about the films we screen. So next week we'll be recording our first episode, which will be if Bill Street could talk, the Barry Jenkins movie. Uh, we sort of, you know, similar to, we sort of delve into the film. Was it a good film to have screened? What the audience thought of it? And so on and so forth. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're not on Twitter because I've, I can't argue with, I, I can't spend my time getting dragged into arguments with, uh, apologists, uh, whose views are germane to this conversation anymore. So I've kind of gone off Twitter. Um, uh, but we're on Facebook and Instagram and we do sort of capsule film reviews and bits and pieces like that as well. Are you being prematurely anti-fascist? Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find the link over to Patreon, where you can donate to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Wow, that's got really ominous overtones with this fascism. Oh, <laughs> oh,
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.